0: I never thought I'd be in that industry. I never thought I'd be going to India. You know, these are just little snippets of how your career trajectory can evolve just by saying yes and by saying yes to opportunities in which you see growth, and which you see kind of a path ahead and being open-minded. When I kind of look at their lifestyle, I realized none of them were W-2s. I've always lived my life with a philosophy that activity breeds activity. Just don't put too much pressure on yourself. I mean, there's a season for everything. Whatever your next move is, isn't going to be your last move. I think just take the pressure off yourselves. And if you are thinking about business ownership, know that you're definitely not alone. And I guarantee you any emotions or thinking that you have around it are shared by many others. When you have the intent to do things the right way, good things happen. Hey guys, John Austinson here from Atlanta, Georgia, age 43, and I have the opportunity of heading up Frambridge Consulting. It's a firm that I started where we play connector between those looking to get into business ownership or those already in business ownership. They're looking to extend their portfolio, and we specialize in connecting them with businesses in the area of non-food franchising. Now, when I say the F-word franchise, you think fast food, and yet there's so many other industries out there that more and more entrepreneurs are waking up to. So. We get the pleasure of working with clients all the way through the process. We work with over 600 different brands. We're constantly adding to that list of vetted opportunities, and we've never seen more activity in the world of franchising. So, uh, exciting time and looking forward to our conversation today.
1: And how big is your company?
0: So, employee-wise, it's a beautiful model. We've got four employees. I've had as many as 40 with the opportunities I've had in the past and you know, love this lean model where we're able to get a lot of leverage through an ecosystem of funding partners, franchisors, legal partners. Consultants and recruiters. And so the beautiful thing is, they're not employees, they're
1: partners of ours. You're saying you have four employees, but you're saying they're partners? I'm just a little confused on that part.
0: Yeah, the partners would be those that we work with. However, they're not employed by us. So when a clients of ours need funding resources, say SBA loans or retirement funding or, or other means of funding a business. We have partnerships with great firms that do an outstanding job that serve within our ecosystem. So our clients, for them, it's a one-stop shop. However, they're not all a part of Frambridge directly.
1: Are you like a real estate broker if people are trying to visualize that? Or is there a different industry or something that they may be able to relate to on exactly what you do?
0: That's a perfect analogy, actually, Austin, and I I use it oftentimes. So we represent 600 fast-growing brands, work with all the different development groups across the country. And all of these brands that are growing are looking for new owners and markets in which they're not currently in. And so we serve as a pseudo recruiter slash consultant, helping these brands find great entrepreneurs to step in. We provide a lot of education to our clients in helping them navigate which opportunities are the best fit for them. They never pay us a dime. We're funded by the franchise brands. And so beautiful thing is if a client of ours were to go directly to a brand or go through us, they're paying the same franchise fee. So it's entirely no cost to them. We're paid on the back end by the brands, very similar to a real estate transaction, if you think about it that way, buyers and sellers.
1: So can you walk us through, does someone who's looking to buy a franchise, do they like Google you and find you? Can you walk us through the life cycle of you finding a client, helping them find a franchise and what that looks like for you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll start off by saying we're blessed. We we don't go out looking for clients. Clients find us either through referrals. Maybe they've read a copy of the book that we've released. They've heard us on a podcast. And so they'll reach out and say, hey, I've always had this interest in business ownership. Don't know what that looks like. Don't know much about franchising. But from what I've heard, we'd like to engage. And so we'll get on a call together, spend about 20, 25 minutes. I'll ask some questions, get to know them. Yeah, I kind of know how to direct that conversation. And I'll share with them a lot of education around different ways of funding a business. What do the financials typically look like? And then the next step would be getting on a Zoom call together where I would share my screen We'll spend about 45 minutes. And what we'll do is we'll walk through the top eight, nine, 10 opportunities in their market to fit the criteria that we discussed in our first call. And we'll select these opportunities based on, of course, availability in the market. Our client will then say, Hey, John, here are the three or four that seem most intriguing out of the gate. Well, once you kind of put the ball in play and you start having these conversations, the magic starts happening. And they start to build this framework in their mind and build the lens through which they can evaluate opportunities. Hey. We really like being able to work remote. We like having smaller teams. We like serving businesses rather than consumers. But ultimately, we hold our client's hand through the process, getting on touch-based calls, but we're really serving them, providing them with funding resources, with a legal resource at the appropriate time. And really, over the course of about two months, helping them determine is this the right opportunity for them. So that's kind of from a high level what our process looks like.
1: What does like a typical client look like who's coming to you? I mean, as far as like how much money they might need to even think about getting a franchise or maybe kind of demographic, what age or have they been entrepreneurs before? Can you give us what a typical client might look like for you?
0: Absolutely. And we've done deals this year with everyone from their 20s to their 60s. But I'd say when you look at where the vast majority fall, it's those that are in their 30s, 40s and 50s. And I'd say probably two-thirds of our clients, it's their first time getting into business ownership. Many of them are corporate executives, corporate middle management. Some are doctors. We work with quite a few medical professionals, quite a few attorneys. You know, but then a third of our clients are existing business owners, and they're looking to either complement their current business, and I can give you examples of that, or they're looking to diversify from it and kind of extend their reach and, and diversification. So, And that's kind of the demographics behind what we see from a net worth standpoint. Probably on the low end, somewhere around 150, 200 all in from a net worth standpoint. But then we work with those you know, with several million in north of that. I'd say 75% of the deals that are being done from an all in investment standpoint, and this would include working capital and everything else, probably 75% of the deals fall between 150,000 and 300,000. Of course, if we're doing car washes or laundromats, you're going to be well north of 300,000, but quite a few opportunities in that range. And we see our clients funding those in different ways. Some will use cash, some will use an SBA loan. That's very common. Some will use a retirement plan through what we call a ROBS program where they can self-direct that. And then others will tap into a portfolio loan or a HELOC. A lot of ways to go about the funding that, that we kind of talk through with them.
1: And you gave us some good examples right there. Can you give us some more categories? Like you said, a laundromat, car washes. I think the more examples you can give, I think might be helpful to anyone listening.
0: When we look at this area outside of food, so there's roughly 4,000 franchise brands in the U.S. Roughly half of those are in food or in lodging, you know, hotels. And I'd say those are the only two categories that we kind of stay away from just because my humble belief is there's easier ways to make money. And we certainly need the people that are running the food outlets, but it's just a different, a little bit of a different animal. And so when you look at what people are getting involved with, I'd say property services has been extremely popular. People with no background, I mean, we've had doctors and lawyers getting involved in this broad range of property services from insulation to dumpsters to gutters, what I call non-sexy businesses that are cash flowing, understandable, non-trendy, aren't going anywhere. In some cases, they're pandemic resistant. At a minimum, they're Amazon resistant. And then we see a huge interest in health and wellness. Now, I do think the fitness space within that is a little bit crowded, but there are a lot of neat health and wellness concepts outside of that we're still doing a lot of oil change deals. We've done deals with three different brands this year in oil changes. Now, just kind of breaking it down. So I'd say that those are the broad categories. When you break it down to specific examples, and I'll just rattle off a few off the top of my head of recent deals we've done. We had dentists out in Los Angeles that just bought the largest fence and rail business in the country. This is a business that has Home Depot as a national account and just can really get their owners out of the gate pretty fast. <laughs> no pun intended, they're on gate, but We had a small business owner in Florida, an existing business owner recently, that just bought a non-medical drug testing facility. They serve the Department of Transportation, regulated businesses, and others that require this ongoing drug testing. Well, these guys are the fastest in the business. They have a strong competitive advantage. We had doctors in Philadelphia a few weeks ago that purchased an oil change business that just has amazing financials. And that's a good example. They're not going to be running the day-to-day. Roughly half of our clients want to leave their current job and step in and run a business, day-to-day operations. That's what we call an owner-operator. The other half of our clients are looking to keep their day job or keep their current business and put a manager in place day one. And this is very common in franchising where we call it semi-absentee or semi-passive or some use the term executive model, but it's where you put a manager in place. And with franchising, the beauty is you've got that franchisor on the sidelines that's also supporting your manager. So the burden doesn't fully rest on you. I mean, end of the day, the buck still stops with you as the owner. However, that franchisor is going to keep that manager marching in the right direction. They're going to be a great technical resource. They will actually train your manager for you. So you do see a lot of that hybrid semi-absentee approach. Again, some of these examples are non-sexy, cash-flowing, understandable businesses. And I'd say, by and large, that's been the theme over the past few years.
1: Well, no, thank you for all those examples, because these are things that I don't even think of like, oh, there's a franchise opportunity for that. And it seems like you don't have to be an owner operator. You can actually have a manager run it and it could be an oil change business or something like that. So I think those are some great examples. I appreciate it.
0: That's the beauty of this is you don't have to have a background in the industry. If you have any transferable skill sets, that's great. You know, I will give the caveat that franchising is not right for everyone. I won't pretend that it is. I'm a member of the Entrepreneurs Organization and we work with a lot with existing business owners that started their own businesses. Some of them are frankly too entrepreneurial to to step into this. They're not willing to follow a system. They're not willing to stay within the box. However, it's my humble belief that for so many out there that say, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I just don't know what that idea is and I'm a little bit nervous. I think it's such a better pathway to at least start with franchising and hey, maybe your second or third venture, you're feeling more confident and you go outside of franchising.
1: Well, perfect. Well, thanks for again giving us the rundown here in the beginning about your company. Well, yeah. Well, how about we talk about your personal journey? What do you think is the best spot to reel back your story of like how you got started before Fran Bridge or in business? Why don't you just tell us the year and we kind of just take it year by year on how you got to where you are today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I look back, you now I've had a few key pivots that we'll hit on here in the next few minutes, but when I mentor younger folks, which I try to do as often as I can. Oftentimes, we'll take it back to college and kind of coming out of college and where the thinking was and, and the different paths that started since then. So certainly some years we can skip over and bucketize them is a bunch of them. But yeah, happy to start there, maybe coming out of college.
1: Okay. Yeah. So where'd you go to college? I went
0: to the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, which our football team is currently number one. So go Dogs. But coming out of college, you know, I'd had a little bit of experience working in Hong Kong one summer and that really opened my eyes to the world out there and it you know, came out And the first opportunity that I was going to step into with Pricewaterhouse ended up falling through before my start date. So God kind of knocked me to my knees. (laughs) I said, what am I going to do now? And scrambled, but ended up with Accenture. Accenture, formerly Anderson Consulting, big global consulting company and didn't enjoy it. Lived with my parents for the first year to save money after paying off student loans. And about a year and a half in, I was asked to go over to India on behalf of a client and Austin, I, I didn't even ask how long. I said let's go and went over to India for about six months, and I uh, just had a great experience. And you know, we we did some offshore work, really eye opening. So didn't anticipate being over there two years out of the University of Georgia. That I'd be in South India, but a great experience that I've really looked back on. We haven't gone back to spring break yet, but had great experience still.
1: And can you explain Accenture and consulting? Because I've heard of the company, but for consulting, I'm always. Confused of what that could mean as well. So, can you give us an example of like what you're doing there in India?
0: Yeah, Accenture is a wide range of management and technology consulting. I'd say they've started steering more towards technology in in recent years. But no, over there, I was leading a small team, or I'd say leading, -leading co-leading a small team that was setting up a call center, and you could see it as taking jobs offshore. However, these were jobs that people didn't want in the U.S. and our customer experience went up greatly and we measured all of that, went up greatly by taking it offshore. And we had high-end professionals answering phones for us and doing a great job. So, you know, it was at a time when outsourcing was very taboo. And so it was interesting for me to kind of see both sides of the equation and form my own opinions, again, outside the news headlines. And I saw how by cutting some cost and taking jobs that people didn't want offshore, were able to save more jobs in the US that were higher paying that we would have had to cut otherwise. So yeah, great experience, kind of seeing both sides of it.
1: And I'm all for worldwide being able to use virtual assistants or whatever, because exactly what you said, other people don't want those jobs. And even if they did, I find in foreign countries, it seems like they're much more excited to do it, even if they were getting paid the same or whatever. So you definitely have that going on too. But why don't you tell us about the India experience, like where you exactly were and was it a culture shock had you ever been abroad and I know you said you were in Hong Kong for a little bit when you did UGA but have you been to India and what was the culture like
0: yeah India was eye-opening it's like no other place and, and those that have been there definitely understand what I'm saying the people are great very hospitable but there are a lot of people <laughs> it's I believe it's three times the u.s population and about a third of the area mass of the US and so it's crowded and There were some dynamics I found really interesting, Austin, around people were so incredibly nice to us, the client and the Americans. However, then I saw some of those same people in turn not be so nice to some of their subordinates that were working on their team. And so, again, I'd say it's a land of contrast. We were staying in a beautiful five-star hotel, and yet, you know, you had some slums literally right around the corner. And, you know, we tried to do some things from a nonprofit standpoint to be able to help out there in the local community while we were there. But no, very eye-opening experience. I definitely encourage people to go. Even those that have been to China would say there's no place quite like India. It's just a unique environment.
1: What was most shocking?
0: Most shocking would probably be just how crowded it was. <laughs> it was you know, some of the jobs that they had assigned to people. And, and I, we'll try not to be too graphic here, but if I'm standing in the restroom, there was a little guy that would come up and rub my back while I was doing that. And, and that, was, that was his job. And it's like they had to search for jobs for people over there to just try to keep people employed but. I do a lot of nonprofit work now and just you know, really believe in giving back and, and stewarding what we have. And so I think that was definitely partly spurred during that time over there amongst other things. So yeah, I definitely look back with very fond memories.
1: And how long were you over there?
0: About six months.
1: Okay. And did you find your wife over there or were you no, married?
0: No. no. Married, uh, married my wife, Jenny, uh, several years later back in the US. Yeah, she would not have fared as well in India, I don't think.
1: Are you one of the thousands of businesses getting hammered by supply chain issues? Are you tired of paying insane shipping costs and waiting months for stuff to come from China? Are you still paying those 25% trade war tariffs? Why are you doing that? Zipbox.com makes it easy for US businesses to partner with factories in Mexico, and you can find everything there. Clothes, packaging, beauty products, building supplies, and a lot more, with new products being added every single day. All of the factories on Zipbox are verified with no shady middlemen like you can find on those other manufacturer websites. If you want to ditch the trade war tariffs, pay 75% lower shipping costs, and get your deliveries in 5 to 10 days, not weeks, well, try Zipbox.com. For Valentine's Day, I wanted to surprise my wife by manufacturing my first adult product. And guess where I was able to find a manufacturer to produce my big product? It was zipbox.com, that's dot com. There's no membership fee and you can search without even creating an account. So try zipbox.com today. I really signed on for the
2: contact details for your guests. That's probably the first time I've seen people willing to give away information. They're just so helpful. Yeah, and for the second part of the pool episode.
1: Okay, what do you think about the pool episode? Yeah, really good. Oh, there are some interviews that went bad, too, that people like on the Patreon feed. Yes, I saw the one with the author. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> did, you,
2: did you listen to it? Yeah, he was a weirdo. All
1: right. So after you come back that six months, you're still working for Accenture for a little while? For a little while. And then I ended up
0: going back to grad school to get my MBA, looked at a few different opportunities, but went back to the University of Georgia where I'd done my undergrad. I really, the opportunity cost was what drew me over there. Is they offered a one-year MBA program where you just kind of fast track it. and so did that, checked the box. And Austin coming out, I, this was '06. I was looking at a lot of different real estate opportunities, had some offers come my way, just about took one with JP Morgan here in Atlanta that was in their commercial mortgage-backed securities business, which was hot at the time. However, come 2007, 2008, there's probably no place you'd rather not be. You know, once we had the, kind of, the real estate crisis hit and all these mortgage-backed securities really went downhill. So thankfully, I did not go that direction. I I actually turned down three different offers in one day, not knowing what was just, I didn't have a piece about them. That afternoon, I got a call from a recruiter, someone that I'd known from my undergrad school days. She said, hey, we've got this neat opportunity with a business called Carter's. And I said, who's Carter's? And she said, Carter's Oshkosh Bagash, the children's apparel company. I said, okay, I know nothing about children's apparel, but it was an opportunity to step into this large public company based here in Atlanta and serve as the right hand to the president of the company, a guy named Joe Pacifico, And just glossing over a couple of years there, great experience in which you know, I got to do some neat things like flying the little airplane all the time, the private jet and stay at the nice hotels. I, I was kind of within the executive team. I was the little peon that hung out with all these older executives, but I got just great exposure and Got to write the earnings call script for the company and meet with investors and really just kind of see how a big large corporation is run from the inside out. At the same time, I was fetching lattes at Starbucks and hauling around his golf clubs you know when we'd go out to play. so it wasn't all glamorous but some really neat exposure and during that time Austin, a uh, very pivotal time for me, our board of directors brought in some forensic accountants and attorneys and said we need to pause our Q3 earnings announcement because we think there's some funny games going on behind the scenes with the numbers. Long story short, there were some deferring of expenses to future time periods, which you can't do as a public company. And my boss, the president, was aware of it, as was our head of sales. And I won't go into too much more detail on that other than those were the findings. Fast forward, they ended up getting charged by the SEC, by the DOJ. We had the FBI come in. Because I worked for these two, these were my two bosses. I had every one of my emails read. I had to get my own attorney and representation. The company paid for it, but it was a trying couple of months there. And fortunately, I never did anything wrong, didn't know of anything that was going on behind the scenes, but still, because of the proximity with these two individuals, who I'd say the president was a good man, head of sales, not so much, (laughs) but it was just taught me an important lesson that if ever there's a gray area, raise a flag, ask questions. I don't let it go. And in hindsight, there are probably a few gray areas I could have asked questions in. Again, I didn't know enough probably to be dangerous in that situation. And Fortunately for me, it came out unscathed, but what a trying time when you're meeting with the government on a regular basis. We had Eric Holder's picture up on the wall down at the government building as I'm sitting here conversing with the FBI and SEC and felt like I was in a John Grisham novel. So yeah, pretty interesting experience for a 26, 27-year-old.
1: Yeah. Because I was looking at your timeline. So that's about how old you are right when you came out of your MBA program. It was 2006. You're about 27, 20. So that happened within the year or two of you joining that company?
0: Yeah. So more accurately, probably 28. I'm off by about a year.
1: Yep. I mean, that's fine. Two years. Oh, in. whatever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But you're a couple of years in. So, I mean, it's not like you've been there a long time. And also, like you were saying, you're hanging out with all these people. You don't know everything, right? I mean, I could totally understand the perspective because it sounds like you got a killer job coming out of MBA to hang out with these people.
0: It was. And as hard as I worked, now I was there seven every morning, you know, I, was, I was busting my butt. I'd formed a lot of alliances. The president was my biggest sponsor you know, and, and cheerleader. He'd given me stock options. I was the youngest one in the company to have stock options. I mean, he was very good to me. And all of a sudden, he was out of the picture completely, exited the company. And so I kind of had to reinvent myself. And, and long story short, our CFO became our CEO, and I've got great respect for him. He's actually still the CEO today. As Jim Collins would say, he's kind of one of those top CEOs. And he came in and you know, kind of cleaned house in some cases. I lost a couple of colleagues through the process outside of those two as well and ended up clearing a way for me to become the youngest vice president in the business and came in and ran a big chunk of our wholesale sales business, managing over 300 million a year, ultimately, to some of the largest retailers out there. And again, I only know enough to be dangerous about children's apparel. I never thought I'd be in that industry. I never thought I'd be going to India. You know, these are just little snippets of how your career trajectory can evolve just by saying yes and by saying yes to opportunities in which you see growth, in which you see kind of a path ahead and being open-minded. So even now when I consult with clients, so many of them stay open-minded through the process. And I say, hey, you're likely going to get into a business that you never thought was on your radar, but a lot of things from a characteristic of the business standpoint can align with what you're looking to do. So just stay open-minded. Don't close doors too prematurely. So anyway, yeah, just kind of wrap up. So I ended up staying at Carter's for 10 years in total.
1: Yeah. And before we talk about the rest of the years and move on with the story of like how you're there for a couple of years and became the vice president of sales, the FBI coming in and interrogating you and obviously... you must have been a little bit like worried at that point. I mean, not that you had done anything, but you had said that you couldn't defer expenses as a public company. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, there's a rule called Sarbanes-Oxley, essentially saying that you have to match expenses to revenues within a given time period if you're a public company that's releasing earnings, or at least ultimately, if you're a public company and every quarter you're putting out earnings as well as guidance on how you're anticipating performing in the next quarter of the next year. You've got to cross your T's and dot your I's. And so if you come out and you show really strong earnings because some of the expenses that should have matched up to revenue within that given period didn't, and they're meaningful enough, then that's something you've got to call out. And if you don't, then you can get in a whole lot of trouble, which is what happened here. And I think a lot of times they look at the intent behind it. And it turns out there were communications around intent behind this. And you know, you're talking a couple million dollars of potential expenses being pushed out with an effort to boost earnings. Again, I don't want to go into too much more detail, but that's kind of the gist of it.
1: Okay. For like that quarter, because you need it to look better. So if you just keep pushing it, eventually it's going to catch up. So that's the idea. Yeah. If you're a public company, there's a lot of pressure on you to hit the numbers. Right. I mean, that, that's all it is. Like I couldn't imagine because it's hard to imagine like long-term thinking and then you have to think quarter to quarter and according to stock price. So I mean, yeah, that's a whole different dynamic that I've never had to go through, or I imagine most people don't, but it's definitely a different way of thinking about business, Of I guess, the quarter-to-quarter aspect, right? It is. And I was
0: ingrained in that for the longest time. And I thank God every day now that that's in the rearview mirror. I love what I do. I love the freedom. I love the autonomy. haven't looked back once.
1: And so, again, as you get moved up into the vice president of sales, You weren't hanging out, I guess, with the other people that you were before, either they left or I don't know if you were just kind of assistant. in, like you said earlier, but how did your day-to-day change within Carter's as you got switched to this new role?
0: Yeah. Within the new role, I had to, again, kind of reinvent myself and and I wasn't a sales guy. I don't don't think of myself as a sales guy. However, I do know how to interact with people and kind of understand, you know, some of the basic tenets of sales. But just didn't have that track record, so yeah, you know, I had to cut my teeth some. I mean, I started off with a smaller revenue base, I was managing just Costco and Sam's Club, but you know, over time was able to double those businesses, you know, for us. But I mean, that, those were huge businesses, and over time the company was very good to me. I, I've got a lot of respect for those that I worked for over the years and worked with over there. But increasing responsibility of picking up additional account bases, additional retailers, building out my team, being given more leeway and more budget to go after marketing initiatives and such on my end, so. I think when you do work within a large company, and this was my experience, really carving out niches for yourself. Even now within what I do with franchising, you know, it's non-food franchising that I focus in, which was a very smart move. But within the corporate world, there are ways to do that as well. So in my account basis, I focused in the clubs, the Costco, Sam's Club, BJ's. I focused in Off Price Channel, you know, TJ Maxx, Ross, Marshalls, Burlington, all those. And then I had some traditional retailers, but I kind of branded myself as the expert in these other areas. And ultimately got the results at the end of the day on the revenue and the profit side.
1: What would you do? Would you just call up these people and try to quote unquote like build relationships? Because I'm just trying to imagine what is that like.
0: Yeah, so I'd say when you're a large company, it's not as much business development as it is building on existing business. So say we were doing 50 million with Costco in a year, the goal would be next year let's do 55 million or 60 million. How do we get there? How do we get them to buy more from us versus the competition? So. There's a cadence to these seasons. You typically have four seasons as an apparel retailer. And so you're getting ahead of that. You're forecasting. You're meeting with the accounts. You're providing projections. You're doing a lot of analysis. You're talking up the next line of clothing, in this case, that would be coming out. But there's a lot that kind of falls under your domain, a lot of the shipping, a lot of the operations. And of course, when you have a supply chain where you're dealing with literally hundreds of millions of garments... Coming from across the world, things can go wrong. And so you're putting out a lot of fires, doing a lot of risk mitigation. But you're also doing a lot on the front end, like the marketing side and thinking through the kinds of promotions and the pricing strategies. And essentially, how do you do more business in the same square footage, potentially, year over year? And in the case of Costco, which I mentioned, they have seven international divisions. And so flew into Mexico, flew into Canada, over to Japan and Korea. And worked with these other divisions to understand how they were similar to the U.S. model and how they were different. And so, yeah, just a lot of nuances kept us on our toes. And, of course, I was managing a sales team. So you're dealing with the personnel side of it as well and keeping them incentivized and motivated and kind of in check as well. And then you're managing, working with cross functionally internally within the company with the operations team and the supply chain and the merchandising team and the design team and the executive team.
1: There was never a boring day. It seems multifaceted for sure. But maybe hit on your example and just keep it as simple as I can to understand it. How were you able to grow the sales from Costco to 55 million to 50? Like, What was your plan and how would you strategically do that?
0: Yeah. And ultimately we grew them well north of that over the course of the time there. But no, it it would be flying up to Seattle six, seven times a year from Atlanta, which that flight never got shorter and showing them detailed sales records of what's been going on in different regions of their locations, warehouses as they call them. We would talk about how the product line for this next year was going to be better and how it was improved on these others. And so we expected higher sell through rates. And we had to get creative. Sometimes we had to cough up a little more in marketing spend to run stronger promotions, in which case we could justify selling them in more inventory because they would be able to sell more inventory in theory. But you get to the end of a season with guys like that and there's stuff stuck on the floor that hasn't sold yet. It's like, how do you handle that? And so you got to get creative on that piece as well of how do we remove those goods from the floor? Do we box them up and ship them out again next season? Do we sell them to off price? Do we donate them? In which case it was more of a write-off. So yeah, lots of moving parts with the business like that.
1: How big was your team that you had to manage as well while you're doing all this?
0: Typically, I had around six or seven direct reports.
1: I mean, yeah, when I just see vice president of sales, or you say that, like, and you've listed off over the last five minutes, all these other complexities, it seems so much more than just sales, right? And like how you're able to even to do that. I mean, where you're flying in different countries and I guess you've at least become quite the world traveler through all your business experiences.
0: It was a great experience. Again, can't say enough good things about the experience there, about the company itself, about the leadership team. I am very thankful now that that's in the rear view mirror. And I think that, Like some of your listeners, over time, you start to learn more about yourself and what do you enjoy? Not just what can you do, but what do you want to do? What do you want that day to look like when you wake up in the morning and what strengths do you want to lean into and play to? One thing that I've realized about myself, Austin, and we'll probably jump into this in our next opportunity here that we'll talk about, but big learning to me, I'd say about four or five years ago, kind of in my later 30s was I'm not the best at managing a large team. I can do that. I don't enjoy doing it. I don't enjoy sitting around chit-chatting and making small talk about person and dealing with personnel-related issues. I beat my head against the wall because I get frustrated because I feel like I'm not moving the needle. Whereas I love working with clients and it's not always easy, but I love being out on the front end, educating, working with clients versus working with employees. Good friends of mine are just the opposite. So it's neat how over time you figure out how you're wired and then you design that opportunity around what you're best at and what you enjoy doing.
1: And so you end up leaving in 2017, you're 38. How about your personal life up to this point? Had you met your wife and had you had children or anything like that?
0: I got married back at age 28. So I'd been married for a decade at that point. And yeah, several young kids, I guess our youngest was born right around that time. Currently, we've got an 11-year-old, 6-year-old, and 4-year-old. And when I say currently, those are their current ages. We're not adding a fourth. We're done. But boy, girl, boy, and married way out of my league and, and have a beautiful family, very blessed, and try to spend as much time with them as I can.
1: And so when you made the move of leaving Carters, what was your reasoning?
0: Yeah. So I had this itch to do something more entrepreneurial. I didn't know what that looked like. I cast a very wide net. And for me at that stage... It could be something as simple as leaving a public company for a private company. And that was more entrepreneurial to me, you know, is how I defined it. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. So through mutual connections, ended up being introduced to the founder of a business called Shelf Genie, which is a Inc. 500 company based in Atlanta, Georgia. It's custom pull-out shelving for your kitchens and pantries, operating with owners across the U.S. I was asked to come in and serve as the president running the day-to-day operations, supporting all of our franchisees across North America. For me, I wasn't seeking out franchising, didn't have it on the radar. This was totally new to me. but stepped in and just had an amazing experience. Got to see how the franchising model can lead so many people into business ownership that wouldn't have been able to necessarily do it on their own or as easily. And there was this world of franchising outside of fast food. And again, very blessed to have found it when I did and absolutely love
1: Shelf Genie and the whole business. Did you even know that was a type of franchise at that point in time before you found out about this position?
0: Probably not. Wasn't on my radar.
1: Well, How'd you get introduced? Were you just looking for new jobs and a friend suggested it or more specifically, you take the role of president? Because that seems like a big – it's not like you came in as vice president of sales or anything. I imagine if you're a president, you're kind of heading the whole thing. So it seems like a bigger jump in, obviously, your responsibility, even though this might be a smaller company.
0: Yeah. No, the founder was still on board as the CEO, but he wasn't there in the office day in, day out. And so, you know, I was kind of partnering with him, serving as his president for the company. And for me, I've always lived my life with the philosophy that activity breeds activity. And so when I started getting that itch 10 years in at Carter's to do something more entrepreneurial, I started talking with other private equity firms in town and really networking and letting it be known that I was looking for something at the same time, I wanted to give back and people would be put in touch with me for networking purposes and I'd try to connect them to folks that I know. And that's exactly how this came about. So it was a little bit of karma. Someone was introduced to me for the purposes of networking. And a week or two later, this guy called me and said, hey, there's this role, that's president of Shelf Genie that I think you'd be perfect for. You want me to introduce you to the founder. So it was one, again, that kind of came to me versus me going out seeking that one in particular
1: and it was still in the Atlanta area. And this whole time you've been in Atlanta, other than it seems like you were flying a lot though for your jobs.
0: Yeah. Moved here at age five and have been in the area as a home base ever since.
1: And so how did it go as president for Genie? It looked like you were there for a couple of years. Yeah,
0: it was wonderful. I mean, we built up a great support team. Life wasn't always easy. I mean, you're dealing with business owners across the country that in which you're supporting them and you're kind of living the emotional roller coaster with them. If things are going well or not going well, you're doing a lot of coaching. We really leaned in heavy on the marketing side. We had a call center that supported them. We're providing them with great technology. We're trying to produce new products for them on an ongoing basis. So really it's an interesting dynamic, that whole franchise or franchisee. I mean ultimately as a franchise or you want to keep all the kids playing well together and happy and the better that they do, the better that you do. And so you really are almost like a family of sorts. That may be a stretch, but at a minimum, your business partners, if you think about it that way. And so, you know, I got to see the successes. I was telling someone earlier today, it sounds cliche, but our very best performers were those that were following the system the closest, that didn't think they were the smartest guy in the room, that didn't come in, try to reinvent the wheel. But those that were willing to follow the system were the ones that were doing a couple million a year and our top performers.
1: Well, how big was Shelf Genie overall? In round numbers, we did, I believe, 50-ish million a year. Okay. Wow. And I've I've never heard of it because I'm just trying to get what the difference is like with maybe how employee counting from Carters to Shelf Genie and how many people you're overlooking. I don't even know if you know how many are in Carters or even at that time, but obviously if it's a public company, I would think it'd be much bigger.
0: Yeah, Carters. Oh, we had thousands of people, but Our sales team was very small. I mean, we didn't need a massive sales team to do what we did.
1: Yeah. But for Shelf Gene, how many people were you dealing with overall? Like, how many franchises were there? And they were all in the US? Yeah. We had probably
0: 150 locations owned by somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 or so owners. So essentially 60 clients. Uh, If you think about that way, if I'm serving them on the employee side, you know, including our call center, I'd say we were probably at around 40, 45
1: employees. I mean, it's still a huge company. I mean, as far as, I've never heard of it. I don't know if other people have or whatever, but it's always hard to know, like if you come in into a certain situation, what's the size difference and how those dynamics were different. So I guess like you were saying, you were dealing with business owners. That was most of what you're doing, trying to help them grow their individual franchises.
2: Yeah.
0: you know, And that's really the beauty of the franchise model is is that you've got this support system. They're not in business for themselves, all by themselves. I mean, they're in business, but ultimately, you're a partner of theirs and they can lean into you. They can have you train up their team. They're looking to you. We had the large marketing data sets. We looked at the marketing analytics across the country and pulled those together to help our owners make better decisions you know, in their marketing spend. And we actually designed a lot of the marketing, ran a lot of the marketing for them. We had the call center that was setting appointments for them. Marketing would make the phone ring and then we would set appointments. So we really made a turnkey and we had a technology system that was really end to end for them. We had the manufacturing plant that was producing essentially the wooden boxes. what shelf Genie is it's custom pull out shelving for your kitchens and pantries and yeah, yeah it's probably a fifty five million dollar industry and we occupied fifty million of that fifty five so we were constantly educating the public on hey, this exists you know for your existing cabinets to create more space and just better solutions but Austin, our target avatar was a fifty one year old female so it doesn't surprise me that you're <laughs> not familiar with Shelf Genie. You weren't our target market that we were going after.
1: Well, it makes total sense. And so you were there for two years. What was one of the most difficult or can you give us some of uh, obstacles that you had overcome while you were there?
0: Yeah, you know, I think there were times that, you know, our marketing team that I headed up, I mean, the buck stopped with me, that would make recommendations and really ask our franchise owners to step out and trust us with new marketing initiatives where it's requiring them to spend a little bit more. And maybe we hadn't proven out the results, you know, with the previous campaign and there are times that we had huge wins doing that, but there were some times that we didn't as well. And I'll tell you what, you don't want to be on the receiving side of an initiative not going well. They were pretty upset. And yes, yeah, so we would try to make it right by them and maybe discount future marketing. I mean, again, my goal was to provide them with the best support. It was also to keep them happy and it was to keep them growing. And again, not just because that was the right thing to do, but the better that they did, the better that I did. I was getting a percentage of their revenue as a royalty payment. So I do have a lot of clients that are businesses that are thinking about franchising their business and turning it into a franchise. And there's a lot of reasons to do that. Private equity loves franchising. If ever you want to have an exit, building it into a franchise is a good idea in a lot of cases. But I always tell people that you're going to wake up one day and you've got kids across the country with expectations of you. So you just have to have the support system and really be in tune going in into what's needed to be a great business partner to these owners.
1: Well, How about specifically when you're talking about marketing, I guess they have to put up money for marketing, but you want them to do it. Can you give us like more details on what one of these examples of what went wrong? Because obviously not everything is going to go right. And you've got to try different things in business, right? Especially on the marketing side to draw up new customers. So obviously you want them to do well, but not everything's going to go well. So, I mean, did you have more, like, more specific details of, yeah, you know, that?
0: I think of one where it's a large national media company that owns local newspapers across the country. And some were already working with these local newspapers for advertising their areas. But what we did was we said, hey, if we can buy in bulk, we can reduce the price for you. We created a pay for performance model as well, which is what you always want in marketing. If they'll essentially partner with you, the vendor, on a pay for performance basis, that's great. But some were reluctant. What I have found in franchising is once you're a franchise owner, you're reluctant to change because you kind of know what you came into the system thinking, and you don't like any changes along the way. So, trying to get people on board with this because we needed everyone's participation in order to make the global campaign work. You know, and ultimately the campaign worked, but it worked in some markets and it didn't work in other markets. So, it's a learning to us. And then for those who it didn't work for, they were not very happy with the base fees they had to pay behind the, the pay for performance. So, I won't bore you with all the details, but. What we found was there were initiatives that work better for some and not for others. And yeah, yeah the great thing is, is if you buy into a Shelf Genie franchise now, you have that history of you know the types of markets that a marketing initiative works in and the types
1: that doesn't. I'm here with Jonathan Cogley. How are you doing, Jonathan?
2: Hi, Austin. Doing great. Thanks.
1: Cool. Uh, Jonathan actually interviewed him on, on episode 85, and he actually helped a lot of our business founders on Group Call 14. So if you're a Patreon member, you can check that out. So your company is Logic Boost Labs. Can you tell us a little bit more about it?
2: Sure. So we're a startup accelerator. We're based in San Diego and we work with startups that are early revenue or pre-revenue. So you've got a great business idea. Maybe you've validated the market. You've got one or two customers or maybe a few beta customers and you're looking to grow your business. We're the accelerator that would help you.
1: So if people wanted to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
2: Definitely visit our website. So logicboostlabs.com millionaire. Sign up for a free mentoring session with me. We'll talk about your business and see if you're a good fit.
1: Okay, so it's free to sign up.
2: Yeah, we're looking for startups. It doesn't cost anything. We're looking to do a free mentoring session with them, learn a little bit more about their business and see if it's a good fit for our team. So our team would then bring angel investment so we can write checks up to say $300,000. And we also include services. We basically accelerate your startup and give you a better chance of being successful. And our goal is to take startups from effectively $0 to 1 million ARR. And what do they need to go to one more time, Jonathan? logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire and we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months i belong to this international organization and you get once a month meeting we all get together and i've gotten frustrated because i go in there and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything and we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about there's no details to it for me it's 700 dollars a month and it's hard to justify you know Uh, Honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings.
1: (laughs) Can you give us an example of something that worked really well that you did there?
0: You know, I think about our call center, we call it call center, but it's really so much more. It was really a great business partner of our franchisees because they were providing a great customer experience. You're running the marketing, you're making the phone ring. Well, you've got to have someone on that end of the line when the phone rings that's ready for that call, that's consistent, that's going to provide a great customer experience because that's the first touch point for the customer. And so we had a lot of franchise owners that said, hey, we bought into Shelf Genie for the call center because that's support level. And so we monitored the metrics constantly. We looked at quality. We looked at answer rates. We recorded the calls for coaching. All of those kind of metrics that go around it. And we improved our scores significantly over time. And nothing made our owners happier than when we held up our end and, and did more than was even asked to help facilitate their sales process. At the same time, there were times that we had some employees out sick or what have you, and maybe we missed a few calls and had to call back, and that made them pretty upset. So we always had, it was an operational environment. We always had to be on our A game. But we had some big wins over the course of our time there at Shelf Cheney and, and the improvements we've made in the call center.
1: That makes total sense to me. Like, If I wanted to even start my own custom cabinet company and do it here in Jacksonville, picking up the phone and dealing with those people and you want a good energy person who's happy to be there. Some of those people are good at getting out there and measuring and do a good job there, but maybe they aren't great over the phone and maybe they're busy and they called at the wrong time. So I could definitely see how that would be one of the huge value adds for A lot of people, it's like, you just get the appointments for me and I'll do the job if I'm good at it. So it seems like that made total sense. So you were there for two years. Why did you end up eventually leaving?
0: Yeah, I saw the opportunity to do what I'm doing now. And again, kind of realizing in my mind what I'm good at, what I enjoy doing, and I saw an opportunity and and leaned into it. So yeah, I started Frambridge Consulting just over three years ago, shortly before COVID. And we have just had an amazing run, Austin. There is such a need in the market. You know, kind of my theory of what was needed was right. (laughs) Thankfully. And I came in and I realized so many people think fast food when they think franchising and and say kind of right off franchising. And yet I've seen firsthand all these other industries and opportunities that people don't know about. I said, there's a huge gap here in understanding and education. And I leaned into that and just started providing value. It started attracting more and more clients. And I'm trying to put processes in place now that will allow us to take on even more clients next year because sometimes we do get a little backed up here. But it's just been an amazing run. We've been able to help so many. First time entrepreneurs, as well as those, like I said, that have a business, but they're looking to add and diversify from their current revenue streams. And it's fun.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that transition because before you'd always been employed by companies, right? So this was as an entrepreneur yourself, not even talking about what you do at Frambridge. Tell me that talk with your wife, and if you're making good money and you're a W2 employee your whole life, basically, what was that for you like personally?
0: Yeah, so when I went from Carter's to Shelf Genie, I actually took a pay cut. I got the bigger title. I got the bigger responsibility, but I actually took a pay cut. I was still making good money, but at Carter's, I mean, there was a reason why I was there for 10 years, (laughs) you know, the stock options and everything really started paying dividends. So that was the transition there. But my wife has been incredibly supportive with each of those big pivots. And for me, when I look around and I look at the guys that I know, they're doing really well. And I don't mean just really well financially. I mean, that's one piece of it, but they also have the autonomy and the freedom to do what they want. They want to go out on their boat midweek at noon. They don't have to ask anyone. That's who I've always kind of surrounded myself with is guys in gals that are really successful. And when I kind of look at their lifestyle and what I want, I realized none of them were W-2s. And we know doctors, we know lawyers, but they're still training time for money. They're making a million bucks a year as a surgeon. That's great. They're training time for money. And I realized I wanted to be able to leverage my time eventually. I knew switching was going to take a couple of years of absolute grinding, but I knew that the long game. And So painting that vision for my wife and she was fully on board. I mean, i had been very fortunate we'd saved up a good nest egg. I mean, we could have gone a good while without income. But man, once I made that decision, and I made it pretty fast. That's always been characteristic of me is I'll think about something and then I'll make a decision really quickly when it's the right move. And this just felt right. And in this role, I love that I can do very, very well for our family. But I'm also helping so, so many out there get into business ownership and change their trajectory. So it's really that ability to impact many others. And I just love hearing the success stories. I love when clients come back and buy additional locations or additional businesses through us, or they refer their brother-in-law. That's where I get my validation now. And thankfully it pays the bills and then some as well.
1: Again, without talking about French Bridge and the clients coming back and stuff, how did you decide that, had you tried looking at maybe even doing your own franchise and you're looking for a franchise broker or something? Like, What kind of specifically got you into this versus, I guess, even starting a different type of business?
0: Oh, I I, I fell in love with the franchise model. I'm a franchisee myself. I mean, I don't just share with other people the the suggestions of buying franchises. I, I mean, I do it myself. I'm investing in a few different ones within the property services space, but I've got good people running those and allows me to help others do what I did. And so what I lived in the world of franchising when I moved over to Shelf Genie, I immersed myself in it. I got to know the the leaders of other brands. I got to see what was going on out there. I got to see the landscape. I saw the trajectory for the industry. And again, what I identified as a gap was, again, looking at my friend group, my peer group, the entrepreneurs organization, nobody was really talking about franchising that much. And a lot of folks that should probably own franchises didn't. And it's because when I did some just querying and asking around they didn't know what was out there. It wasn't on their radar. And I said, there's an opportunity here that others aren't doing a good job of in educating and communicating the proposition out there that I personally believe and have seen firsthand is a better path for the vast majority. So again, it was kind of that needs base. It started with the why. And then I kind of said the what and the how, and that all came behind it.
1: Well, how'd you get your first client after you finally started Framebridge?
0: It's interesting. There are others that do what I do. They will go out and buy a list of leads. If someone submits their name on a website, they'll go out and buy that from the website. It's an interesting industry. I've got a lot of friends in it. I don't love the business broker world in general. I don't trust certain people out there, which is unfortunate. But you could also say that about any industry. And so just my value set and the way I go about it, I was determined to do it very differently. So I've never bought a lead in my life and I never plan to. Instead, I work with people that come to us. It's referrals, which we get a lot of referrals because we do a good job of getting content out there, whether it be through LinkedIn and social media or going on podcasts or our book. And so we do get a lot of referrals. We hear a lot of people that have heard us speak. And I say us, I mean, it's largely me. And they'll reach out and say, hey, we want to learn more. We like what you had to say and hadn't really thought about it before, but we'd love to dig in more. So that's who I work with and have never had trouble getting clients
1: doing it that way. Do you remember your first client?
0: Yeah. No, I had a couple of first clients. And in hindsight, if you never suck at anything, you're never going to be good at it, (laughs) is my opinion. And so I came in and yeah, I probably didn't do a good job with those first couple of clients. In hindsight, I probably would have showed them different brands because I didn't have a good grasp of everything that I do now. But my first deal was a guy named Nathan Bocock, who is 40 years old. He's become a dear friend of mine over in Columbia, South Carolina. He's the largest franchisee of two men in a truck. had built up an organization where they operated 2 man truck moving service in about 10 different markets across the Southeast. And we did a deal together. He gave a young guy equity in another market and a business that, that he bought into in the waste management space. He's since come back and bought another location of that. He's since come back to me about a year later, and we did another deal on another brand together. And he's now grown that one significantly. And I was over in Columbia recently with him, took my son up to the Georgia-South Carolina game. And, and Nathan and I went out to dinner and, and went to the game the next day together. And he's a game cock. I'm a Bulldog. Of course, we won. But Nathan has just become a good friend of mine. He's referred a lot of business our way. We've done probably five or six deals in Columbia, South Carolina and now. And you know, everyone kind of knows who Nathan is. He, he's a great guy. So, you know, you work with good people. And that's always been my philosophy. When I introduce people to franchisors, they know that these are the best of the best. And I've got a no-jerk policy. You know, I've fired plenty of clients before that weren't going to move forward, weren't the right fit. And I don't think would be a good fit for some of the franchise systems. So, yeah, I think doing things the right way has always been my intent. And I'll screw up from time to time. I don't pretend like I don't. But when you have the intent to do things the right way, good things happen.
1: And as we're wrapping up this interview, if anyone wants to check out after this episode, since we're getting near the end, episode 153, I actually interviewed the founder of Two Minute in a Truck. But I guess looking back and making this move to what you do today, what have you learned starting your own company over the last couple of years? And any feedback or advice for anyone who's maybe not going the franchise route or who's maybe starting their own brokerage or consulting or what have you experienced as an entrepreneur yourself?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, really knowing yourself going in and that's a pretty broad statement, but one thing I found is I'm the hardest boss I've ever had and it's not even close and I have to give myself a break sometimes, but I catch myself working evenings and working weekends quite a bit, certainly making time for my family. I mean, I've got the priorities down, but I work incredibly hard. This is always on my mind. So I think knowing yourself, I mean, I knew I was self-motivated. I knew I could hold myself accountable. I knew I didn't need a pep talk from someone else every day. I didn't need someone else kind of checking over my shoulder. And I mean, I I just feel free. It's three and a half years in. We became a seven-figure business in year two. I mean, the run rate's just been great. Not everyone would like this role and I wouldn't like everyone else's role. So it comes down to knowing yourself and just to reiterate that one last time.
1: Well, do you have like a specific routine or I consider myself pretty self-motivated as well. And I think anyone who's going to be a franchisee or entrepreneur are pretty self-motivated, but is there any tips or, or what your schedule's like during the week that's kind of helped you? Because sometimes when you have as much freedom as you have, it sounds like, or at least this happens to me as well, even though I'm self-motivated, I'll go in, I don't know, even stages during the day or maybe some weeks are better than others as far as like work output and whatnot. But especially if you specifically. It sounds like you have plenty of financial freedom that you could work maybe ten hours a week and still be fine. Like what's your routine like and how do you keep motivated that way?
0: Yeah, like so many, I, I wake up early. I've got an office above our garage. It's a carriage house office, great setup, a little distance from our home. I'll back and I'll be in my office by five thirty in the morning. But you know, I start my day, read the Bible, you know, do my preparations for the day, and then I get going. And so I'm working probably around six AM until seven. Then I take the kids to school. I get back and I do intermittent fasting, so I don't worry about breakfast. You know, I, get, I get a free morning where I'm, I say free morning, it's usually back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back calls you know, with clients. And then I'll work the afternoons. But two afternoons a week, I carve out time to go to my one-on-one trainer. And then I'll go to the infrared sauna and the cold plunge after that. I, I put a big focus on health and wellness and try to balance it out. But I'm listening to business podcasts. I'm listening to your podcast. You know, When I'm in the sauna, I'm constantly intaking content. What I found for me is I do my best thinking when I'm exercising and I'm hearing good content coming my way. It gets my mind going in the right direction. And I've got a laundry list of initiatives and things I want to try. Short on time, I can't do it all. But something that I've really gotten good at recently, Austin, is saying no. And good is the enemy of great is what Jim Collins says in his famous book and I believe that the power of saying no, it's hard at first, but then you start exercising that muscle and it becomes a little easier and recognizing that every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. So I'm still making mistakes, but I'm getting better at that every day is the ability to say no and more focused and really subtraction can be better than addition.
1: It sounds like maybe what motivates you too is, like you said, at some point is having that freedom to do what you want. You don't have to in the office from eight to five. I guess that's one thing I'm good at too. Is like, I never fake work. If I'm losing my productivity, I'll go do something else during the day. Or if I've got to run an errand, get out of the house, whatever. It sounds like you're able to do that. And maybe again, you don't only value money or else you would not probably moved from your very first job. It sounds like, you know, it's like having the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want. So hopefully that's some motivation for anyone who's listening.
0: 100%. I've got a great mastermind group. It's through the Entrepreneurs Organization and in, in our forum. And I think surrounding yourself with like-minded people that are also growing in all facets of their lives and, and growing strong businesses gives you ideas, but also spurs you on. So while I'm in business for myself, I do feel like I've got a great personal board of directors and I'm around other motivated people on a regular basis. That'd be one other plug I would give.
1: Speaking of that, again, it's kind of when you said you were listening to podcasts, me thinking back to, I was like, I guess that was part of my motivation always listening to business podcasts. It's like I heard other people's stories or maybe someone heard your story and they're like, well, if he can do it, then I can do it. And you don't feel like you're alone working hard because I think that's what happens a lot too as entrepreneurs. You get lonely and you're like, what's the point of working this hard? Does anyone even notice? Especially if you're not making progress financially or any other way. So I think that's helped me and it sounds like maybe helped you as well. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, John. I guess if someone wanted to reach out and learn more about you or say thank you for doing the podcast, what would be the best way for them to reach out and say thank you?
0: Yeah, certainly connect on LinkedIn. But I'd say as a first step, come out to FranBridgeConsulting.com. There'll be a pop-up, sign up for our monthly newsletter. You'll get some great content every month. And we'll also get a digital copy of our book over to you titled Non-Food Franchising. And I'll have my assistant reach out to you. And if ever you would like to get on a call, we'd love to chat.
1: Well, thanks again for coming on. And I don't know if you maybe have any other last words of wisdom you want to leave with everyone. I think you've left a lot of good thoughts, especially like knowing yourself too. It's been a while since I've done this, but especially maybe if you're getting into franchising or maybe you want to start your own business, I think doing like a personality test to kind of know yourself is like you said, you could do some jobs well, but just because you do good in a certain job doesn't mean you necessarily want to do it. So that's definitely one thing that I've pulled out from our interview. I don't know if there's anything else, like I said, that you might want to leave the listeners with.
0: Yeah, I think just don't put too much pressure on yourself. I mean, there's a season for everything. Whatever your next move is, isn't going to be your last move. And your career can evolve. Your business ownership portfolio can evolve. And oftentimes, tell clients, hey, this may be right for this next season. But after that, you can add in something else or subtract something. So I think just take the pressure off yourselves. And if you are thinking about business ownership, know that you're definitely not alone. And I guarantee you any emotions or thinking that you have around it are shared by many others. So, yeah. All the best and and really appreciate you having me on the show, Austin.
1: Well, thanks for coming on, John. And thank you all for listening. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes. Episode 197 with Two Maids and a Mop. Episode 89 with the author Incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with barbecue smokehouse and if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes well why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests all you have to do is become a patreon member i lead the calls and you get to ask the questions so join us go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now